0: So much of the monument industry is commercial in many aspects. As we've spent the month looking at different materials for gravestone markers, we've largely ignored an entire sector, and that is vernacular markers, markers that are handmade. This week and next week, I'm going to be talking about some of the more unique examples, and also some of the more common. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So it's no secret, if you're a longtime listener, that I love vernacular gravestones. I think that they are much more interesting than commercially produced gravestones, whether they be slate, marble, or granite. The best way I can describe it is they have a beauty that a lot of people dismiss as being rough around the edges. But to me, and this is going to sound hokey, but they have a beauty the way that a child's drawing does. And don't get me wrong, I am not the biggest fan of children. I mostly pretend that my friends who have kids don't have kids just because it's easier. Because kids get on my nerves, despite the fact that I was a teacher for a lot of years. But the way that a parent cherishes a drawing made by a child. It has a certain beauty, which is very different from something that they see hanging in a museum. It doesn't make that drawing that the child made for them any less valuable. And in fact, the drawing that the child made for them is in many ways more valuable. Because a painting hanging in a museum can be reproduced on t-shirts and coffee mugs, on posters, and sold to any Tom, Dick, or Harry off the street. Whereas the drawing that their child gave them is very unique. And so I think that this is where vernacular markers, while stylistically often are very simple in comparison to commercially produced markers have a real beauty to them because they are so individualistic. Now, today I am going to specifically be focusing on concrete. Based on studies I have seen, and granted, I think that this is a vastly underappreciated area of study, nine times out of ten, if you have a vernacular marker, it is going to be made of concrete. Now, I in many ways, started my career in the gravestone world with concrete. So it will always be near and dear to my heart. And I look back now and I cringe a little bit because so much of what I assumed when I was out there, I maybe was not able to spot how unique or the stylistic differences or just the breath because I had not seen enough of them. And the fact was... Even though I visited many cemeteries before that, I may just not have noticed them. Concrete markers, in general, tend to be on the smaller side. Um, I have seen some large ones, some really impressive ones. But for the most part, they are smaller. And unless you know what to look for, you might miss them altogether. It's funny, I was actually in a cemetery today. I've been out working with the archaeologists on my team, uh, and... It's been a grueling couple of days digging (laughs) shovel tests along a major highway. Which, uh, if you ever want to see the disappointing side of America wade through knee-deep trash on the side of a highway, I guarantee you there is very little beauty to be found there. But today, one of the side streets that we kind of jutted off on, there happened to be a cemetery there. So we decided to pull over and have lunch there. So we ate our lunch sitting on a stone wall, and afterwards, one of my colleagues had to take um, a phone call. So I let him kind of wander off in one direction, and I, of course, took a stroll through the cemetery. And one of the first things I always do in cemeteries is I go to the edges, because this is where you're going to find vernacular markers. They often are the poor folks, the forgotten folks. They are on the fringes. That does not mean that they are any less impressive or they are in any way less worthy of your attention. But if, after hearing this, you want to start looking for these, that's my recommendation. Start on the edges. Start by the fences. Start in the little nooks and crannies that are tucked away towards the back of the cemetery because that's where you're going to find a lot of these. Not always, but in general. So let me, before I get too deep into this story, talk a little bit about the history of concrete. The first thing I will say is it is concrete, not cement. They're two different things. Concrete itself is a composite material, meaning that it is made up of multiple parts. The two most important parts are the aggregate, The gravel, sand, whatever stone pebbly part, plus concrete. So you have a solid part, which is the aggregate, and you have a liquid part, which is the concrete. So concrete is the liquid part that holds cement together. But concrete really cannot be anything without cement, if that makes sense. Now. This is something that has changed, and this is one of the reasons that concrete kind of gets a bad rap. Now, historically, for most of history, concrete was made with a lime-based cement or mortar. Now, what is lime? Lime is essentially calcium carbonate. This generally comes in the form of limestone. So the base is either pulverized limestone or chalk then a couple of things can happen. And this is where it gets a little confusing. And I'm not going to go into too much detail, but just to give you a general idea, a few things can happen. First of all, you can burn it. And if you burn calcium carbonate, it goes through a process which is called calcination. And that creates quicklime. Quicklime, which is calcium oxide, also very popular for a lot of different reasons. Um... The addition of oxygen means it has different properties and things like that, but quicklime probably is most famous as being used in graves. You have probably heard of this, especially with mass open graves, they would sprinkle quicklime over the top to slow kind of the rotting decomposition process. Now, at the point that you have quicklime, you can slake it. There's no slaking or basically hydration of the lime, where you add water and it becomes calcium hydroxide. This is a very useful form. It's one of the most popular. Now, all of these different forms of lime can be used in different ways. They make different types of mortar. They make different types of cement. So, for example, and I'm going to go back now to the Romans, because that's really where we have to start our discussion of concrete. The Romans used two separate types of lime. And by using combinations of different ones to get certain consistencies of concrete, and if you talk to anybody that uses lime-based mortar on a regular basis, they have a preferred ratio that they use to give it a certain consistency. I am not a hands-on preservation person, so I'm not going to comment on that, but this is a practice that clearly goes back to the Romans because the Romans also had opinions on this. And there is a reason... That sort of the golden age of Rome is also known as the concrete revolution. Because as they sort of monkeyed with the formula and realized just how versatile concrete as a building material could be, what then happened was they started to attempt things that they had never done before, particularly new architectural forms. So the biggest ones are going to be the arch. And then, this is going to be a term that you can take in a couple of ways, vaulting. So this can be vaulting inside a building generally, but also on a smaller scale. And then lastly, the dome. So, so many of these really famous Roman buildings, basically the ones that anybody goes to Rome to see today, if it was not for concrete, would never have been built, It allowed them a versatility and a lightweight option because concrete is far lighter than stone. So they could build these massive, massive buildings. Without concrete, you don't get the Pantheon. Without concrete, you don't get the Colosseum. Without concrete, you don't get the Triumphal Arches. They are able to do more with a lot less building material. So... Where does concrete kind of intersect with funerary architecture? Well, it's also in Rome. One of these early buildings, and it's a pretty interesting one. It's one I have never seen, and there's a good reason for that. It is actually the Mausoleum of Augustus, which was built in 28 BC, before Common Era, whatever you want to say. And it relies heavily on this. So it is a series of concentric circles, made of earth and brick and then the outside is faced with travertine the top which has a dome was actually planted with cypress trees which is interesting because cypress is one of the trees classically associated with funerary spaces now Like many Roman buildings, this went through several permutations. So keep in mind, the Romans did cremate. So this was actually a repository, even though it's called a mausoleum, for the ashes of not just Augustus, but his extended family, his wife, um, children, brothers, sisters, etc. Now, their funerary urns are believed to be long gone. And I think that's probably safe to say. Obviously, once Christendom comes in, the Christians take it over. It's used for a variety of purposes, including a concert hall. It's sacked by the Visigoths after the fall of Rome. I mean, this building has been through the ringer, but it is still there. Now, the last time I was in Rome was 2006, so it has been a minute. It's been 15 years. At the time, it was not open. In fact, it has not been open to the public since the 1970s because of its deterioration. In 2017, it started to undergo a massive um, 6 million euro restoration process. And I believe it actually just reopened in 2021. So if you want to see the beginnings of concrete and the funerary industry, all you need to do is go back to ancient Rome the next time you're there. And if I go through Rome again, which... I have no plans to in the future, but if you do, I think it would be something to see. Now, despite this concrete revolution, it's kind of important to note that concrete goes away for a really long time. While mortar continues to be used, concrete as a primary building material really does decline after the Roman Empire. And... It's interesting because last week, when I was talking about polished granite, it sort of undergoes a similar process. Now, that's not to say that lime stops being used. It certainly is. And they don't continue to use the same process. So, for example, here in Georgia, if you're familiar with the material tabby, tabby is made of a lime-based mortar plus oyster shells. And it's used in coastal areas because they don't have gravel to make concrete. And it has the added purpose that if you burn oyster shells, you get lime. So really, all you need is oyster shells, and you can make yourself a pretty nice house. And if you go down to you know, Charleston, Savannah, all the way down through Florida, you can see a number of examples of surviving tabby structures. So the inherent technology doesn't go away, but the widespread use of concrete does. Now, where this changes is in the 19th century, and it changes mainly because of something called Portland cement. Now, say the words Portland cement to a preservationist and you will see them shudder. Because the type of lime, and lime is still used in Portland cement, but... It's a slightly different form of lime that has other things added to it. And this other th- the other things that are added to it, and I'm, again, I'm not going to go too deep into the chemistry. I myself find this one a little bit confusing. They change the chemistry enough that it loses a lot of the elasticity and plasticity which traditional lime exhibits. Basically, Portland cement is harder than traditional lime-based mortar. And as a result, it does not expand and contract the same way. So instead of expanding and contracting in the way that we want things to expand and contract, it cracks. And it also... Like you need to use a certain amount of it to get a good product. You need a little bit more of it. But this changes things. The reason that... Concrete becomes so popular as a building material is because Portland cement is cheap, it's abundant, it's easy to make, and it also gives concrete an appearance that looks more like stone. And this is a big deal because it means that you can kind of replicate for far less money the same look. Now, a million years ago when I was in grad school, I say a million years ago, I've been out five years, but When I was in grad school, I can remember that one of the books I had to at least read portions of was called Concrete a History. So I am oversimplifying things here. You know, there was a roughly, I swear, Concrete a History was somewhere like to the tune of Stephen King's The Stand. This thing was massive. You could easily kill an intruder with this book. So there's a lot of history I'm skipping over, but... I want to get you to the late 19th century because the rise of Portland cement explains why we also have a rise of concrete markers. It starts to be widely used in building practices. It starts to be cheap and readily available. Think about it now where you can go down to Home Depot and buy a bag of quickcrete. It's so easy to get to. And I think that that's one of the reasons that you do see a proliferation of this. And it's also, it's dirt cheap. That's the other thing. But if you are pouring and casting concrete, as simple as it might seem, and again, I'm not a hands-on preservationist, but I have mixed concrete before. Um, I concreted the base of my mother's mailbox last June. Looks great, just saying. There is a certain consistency. There is a time limit where if you don't allow it long enough to cure, you can definitely mess things up. So while I say it's quick and easy, you do still need somebody who has a certain amount of building skill. Now, Circling back around, so my interesting concrete markers, and I apologize to anyone who's heard this story before. It's been a very long time since I talked about it, but going back to the early days of the podcast, you may remember when I interviewed Sam Beetler, Cemetery Sam, down in Savannah, um, who I bring up quite frequently. He and I met because I was doing an internship for the city of Savannah. And at the time city of savannah cemeteries weren't taking on interns but i was able to get in for an internship with the municipal archives and if you actually follow along on social media i had shared something last week about luciana spraker who is the director of the city archives in savannah lovely woman she was being honored for um, women's history month by the historic savannah foundation And originally, Luciana, I told her, I was like, I want to do something with cemeteries. I'm really interested in cemeteries. Like, that's what I want my field internship to be. There was nothing in terms of preservation that I could do hands-on, so she tried to come up with something. She said, well, maybe the city needs, like, a new informational brochure written you could do the research for. And she bandied about a couple of ideas. And finally, she came up with one where she said, you know, I have been talking to Hugh Golson. Now, Hugh Golson, if you are a Savannah person you may be familiar with, he was a very interesting guy. Um, a career teacher, but he is a Savannah man through and through. His history goes back to the early days of Savannah. His family were plantation owners. Um, <laughs> he is very aware of this troubling history and definitely has done a lot of work. He is a very enthusiastic his- like local historian, has, frankly, one of the most beautifully restored homes I have ever seen. It's right off Forsyth Park. I did have the privilege of going and getting a tour one day. But anyways, Hugh Golson had asked a lot of questions about concrete markers in Laurel Grove South Cemetery. This led Luciana to sort of think, like, maybe we should do a survey of these markers, and so on a sunny spring morning, I met with Luciana, Cemetery Sam, and Hugh Golson in Laurel Grove South Cemetery. And Hugh walked us through and he pointed out examples and things he was interested in. And we basically laid the foundation work for a summer's worth of internships. And so it was agreed that I would be out there every day, usually from about eight o'clock in the morning until like three in the afternoon, three to four days a week because it was an internship. And what I did was we came up with a survey form and I surveyed by hand every concrete marker in the cemetery, which by the time I was done was over 2000. Now, this was everything. And I'll I'll go briefly into it. I I do have a lot of other things to cover. But just to give you an idea of what I did was I was looking at the condition. Then eventually I went through and I geolocated all of them and made a map with points on them so you could find them in the cemetery. They ranged from very small and very simple to large. And there were a lot which I don't want to say were commercially produced because I don't think that they were commercially produced in the traditional sense what I would call them is sort of an in between spot where it is a funeral home cemetery marker. Where funeral homes would offer a more affordable handmade marker. Now, here in Atlanta, we have a similar tradition, which you probably have heard me talk about Eldrin Bailey. Eldrin Bailey, again, it, it's worth mentioning too that. All of the cemeteries I am talking about right now are black cemeteries. I will circle back around to that idea later. But Eldrin Bailey produced handmade concrete markers for a number of traditionally historically black funeral homes here in Atlanta, likewise. I have not been able to trace the origin of the concrete funeral home markers in Savannah. There were, at one time, at least three or four black funeral homes in the city. It's interesting now, I'm kind of curious if I could trace it perhaps through death certificates looking up to see if they all came from the same funeral home. I can say that most of them were produced in the 1920s. And this is a trend that across the board, basically from the turn of the 19th century through the end of the 1930s is the height of concrete markers there are outliers. I have seen them as recently as 2006. People never stopped making these. But that was definitely the heyday. And there's a couple of things that happen. You have the influenza epidemic of 1918. That happens first. In the 1920s, particularly here in Georgia, this is when the bull weevil hits. So, if you don't know anything about the bull weevil, it basically, I heard it described as a tank with jaws. Decimated the cotton crop, cotton prices fell dramatically, and lots of people were out of work. So, before the Great Depression, there was a depression everywhere that was impacted by the boll we- weevil. Then the Great Depression hits in 1929. So, you essentially have almost 20 years of economic hardships. Now, I'm going to come back to this caveat later. I am not saying that concrete or vernacular markers are always the product of hardship. But very often they are. Particularly when you have communities that are overwhelmed with a lot of deaths in a short period. People take things into their own hands. They start doing their own work. And if you remember last year when I talked about the 1918 influenza epidemic, that certainly was true. So I logged every single one of these concrete markers. Both the funeral home produced. I also... Logged things that, to me, maybe were not intended as markers, but were still concrete. The most common being burial vaults. Now, you might say, wait a minute. This is maybe a good time to segue over and talk a little bit about concrete burial vaults. Because aside from actually manufactured or produced gravestones, whether they be from a funeral home or handmade, the amount of people that have concrete burial vaults as burial chambers is staggering. But the amount that have concrete burial vaults also as markers is really striking as well. So you might ask, what are we talking about here? Now, going way back to the beginning, when I talked about Forest Lawn Memorial Park and the rise of Memorial Park cemeteries, one of the things that was popularized was the use of concrete burial vaults. Now, concrete burial vaults were not new in 1917 when Forest Lawn launched. They were already slowly gaining popularity, but when I give you the timeline of this, it'll make sense. So, in the 1880s, um, L.G. Haas, L.G. standing for Leo, the Leo Haas Manufacturing Company in Illinois, began to conceive of a new manufacturing line of products that they could sell. Now, it's important to remember that some of these were actually grave markers. Um, They also owned a cemetery, but the thing that they really thought that they could pitch was the idea of a burial vault made out of concrete. Keep in mind, 1880s, late Victorian era, this is when we see the rise of Portland cement as well. So it's cheap and easy to make. So the idea was you could be buried in a vault which would not collapse. Traditionally, when coffins were made of wood, so before the rise of caskets. So caskets meaning something that is made out of a material other than wood. Traditionally metal, but other things as well. Um... So when you have wooden caskets, and you can see this in almost every, excuse me, wooden coffins, not caskets, in almost every American cemetery, what happens is eventually the top rots and it collapses in. And then you have subsidence of the ground, and so that you get grave depressions. And actually, I was in a cemetery last week, and... The way that it was that there were oak trees, and so there are like those kind of rich, russety, brown, red leaves. I looked across the landscape, and you could see every grave depression because these leaves had kind of collected in them. So it was a very shady cemetery. So the, the top of the ground was very mossy, like bright, vibrant green moss. Then you had these russet red depressions that were all of the grave spaces. And you could tell. It's a perfect example, but in an age when they were pushing mechanized lawn mowing and things like that, people thought it was unsightly. They wanted to have nice, smooth level ground and having concrete there helped do that. So this is when sales start to jump. Now, it's important to remember that vaults did exist before that. However, they were primarily made of brick and There's a long period of overlap between when concrete burial vaults are introduced in the 1880s and when brick falls out of favor. So doing research for another particular project, I had pulled the um, cemetery records on this gentleman that I was researching, and he died in 1908. His wife died in 1898. Both of them were buried in brick vaults. So it was starting to catch on. But this is why I bring it up, and I read this statistic that in 1915, only 5 to 10% of cemeteries use vaults at all, whether they be brick or concrete. What changes this, of course, is the influenza epidemic in 1918. Being in Illinois, Chicago experienced 8,500 deaths in about eight weeks. And being in a shortage of all supplies for death care they were able to clean up because they were one of the few companies that had a large enough stock to satisfy all of these folks who suddenly needed death care. And it really just rolls from there. So Wilbert, who was Leo's nephew, takes over the company in 1913 at the age of 21. In 1919, he changes the name to the American Vault Works And then in the 1930s, he really starts to come up with some things. And part of me respects him because he definitely had a vision, but part of me is like, oh, man, you're part of the industrial complex problem. He was a true American entrepreneur, though. So he is inspired by, keep in mind, in the 1920s, the discovery of King Tut's tomb in Egypt really leads to a frenzy of Egypt mania. And he starts looking at the long-term preservation of the coffin, and it gives him the idea to emulate the practice used by the ancient Egyptians, and that was to use asphalt to line things. So, he starts to advertise a waterproof burial vault, where it is concrete, the interior is sealed with asphalt, which asphalt is a... It's not technically concrete, but it's very similar to concrete. It basically uses different binding agents and lime mortar, but obviously the fact that we use it on roads, you can if you step on concrete, it definitely has a different texture and different feel. It is related. And its waterproof properties are really attractive when you use it for things like paving. Or even, you know, when you hear about tarring roofs and things like that. Now, I think all of us know that this is an ad campaign, so he claimed that the asphalt-lined vaults were sealed against not only water, but also microbes and vermin. I think we all know that this is absolute crap, and none of this is true. And concrete burial vaults, while they may help with subsidence a little bit, they do generally fall apart. Particularly in areas that are very soggy and very damp. Concrete is tough, but it's not that tough. Um, But that being said, he also introduces a few other things in the 30s. So in 1936, he introduces personalization. He partners with a lot of big organizations, particularly organizations that are fraternal in nature. So the Elks, the Knights of Columbus, all of those things so that you can have a personalized burial vault with the insignia of your choice on there. Obviously there are also nameplates placed on them. 1937 he introduces cremation size vaults. So you can have your cremains buried. So yes, you can have a smaller version of the large burial vault. By 1938 He is the largest producer in the United States. And right up until today, they kind of continue to hold that. They still hold 12% of sales overall. It's really interesting because if you go to their website, they actually have an excellent little timeline that you can sort of scan through. They also have a who's who of who are buried in what they now call Wilbert vaults. Louis Armstrong, Pearl S. Buck, Richard Daly. I don't think anybody's too happy about that, even in Chicago. Uh, Jimmy Dorsey, Dwight Eisenhower, Mamie Eisenhower, Herbert Hoover, Hubert Humphrey, Conrad Hilton, LBJ, Joe Kennedy, Rose Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and the list goes on and on. Um, I also enjoy they have Betsy Ross on there because she was (laughs) reburied. And apparently she needed a concrete burial vault at that point. But um, they try to make it like a celebrity status symbol. Which uh, I I just found it hilarious overall. Why do I go into this in-depth description? And the reason I do this is because for many people, that concrete vault actually becomes their headstone. So... This is one of the things I almost immediately started to observe when I was working in Laurel Grove South Cemetery in Savannah. And that was that there were these flat concrete, I was calling them ledger stones at first, because that's what they look like. Suddenly I started to look a little bit more at them, and I realized what it is is actually it's the top of a concrete burial vault that is above the surface. So what I'm going to read to you, caveat. Um, So this is from an article that was written by Ian Brown, who is a professor at the University of Alabama. And it's called the Southern African-American Burial Pattern as represented at Gadsden's Alabama City Cemetery. And he talks about some observations that he made while walking around an African-American cemetery Dr. Brown, brilliant man, really. And I have to give him credit because he has brought a lot of people into the fold. But he is an academic in the worst sense. King of the ivory tower. Um, So his tone when I read this, I'm not a huge fan of it because I think it's a little condescending. Um, and I'm not crazy about the way that it talks about this. But if you have ever met Dr. Brown in person, and I know he is beloved by students, and I am good friends with a number of his students, but I can almost hear his voice when I read this. So I I only say that just because I think it has a certain tone that I'm not a huge fan of, but it has some good observations. The most basic feature of the African-American burial pattern in the South is the use of the concrete vault, within which is placed a coffin. Such use does not provide 100% proof of an African-American burial, but the probability is high when they occur in any quantity in a cemetery or in a section of a cemetery. The typical Southern African-American burial ground is characterized by a landscape cluttered with these vaults. I use the term, quote, clutter, unquote, purposely because they are literally popping up out of the ground wherever one walks in such cemeteries. And they are usually packed closely together. Although the vaults could easily be set so that they are invisible beneath the ground surface, they seldom are placed in such a fashion. They most often stick up out of the ground and show their caps. Sometimes, especially for those in a row, they are arranged in a stepped or stairway fashion, This is particularly seen when vaults line up along a hillside, but even in flat areas, the graves are often arranged like stairs. Presumably, this is related to biblical imagery of a stairway to heaven. But I have not actually heard this voice by anyone. The main point of putting a casket in a vault is to keep the grave from settling and to preserve the flatness and presumably beauty of the cemetery grounds. However, as the vault caps of the African-American cemetery rise to varying heights and the graves themselves are unaligned, things can look very haphazard indeed. Okay, hopefully you see what I mean about the tone of that. But, all right, I am going to go in on this. So I think that there is a longstanding tradition, and I know I have posted pictures of cemeteries in and around New Orleans Above ground vaults are incredibly common. They are problems in areas with rising seawater. But what it is, is that if you are spending money for a funeral, the way that it is seen is that you're paying for this. Something which already has a nameplate on the lid, that becomes your gravestone. When you are someone of limited means, this is an incredibly important thing to remember. What that description does not take into account is the cost of the funeral industry. And believe me, Jessica Mitford had something to say about the concrete vault idea when she wrote the American Way of Death. And it kind of annoys me because you have to see this as a cultural phenomenon where these are folks who are trying to do the best for their loved ones who have died. And they are being buried in a cemetery that already requires vaults, which, by the way, is not required by law. This is a cemetery preference thing. You don't have to have a vault unless you go to a cemetery that requires one. So you can choose a different cemetery. They already, for the most part, have to buy the vault. So they leave it exposed on the top because it provides an opportunity to already have a visibly marked grave. Now, he does go on to observe there is a long-standing tradition of swept cemeteries among African-American populations, 100%. Having weeds or grass grow over the grave is seen as a sign of disrespect that you are not keeping up appearances. So having the top of the grave clear, it's considered to be a very attractive thing. Having that ledger stone already covering the grave space makes that very easy to keep it clean. Now, there are some incredible examples. Actually, in the same issue of, and this is from The Quarterly, which is AGS's like shorter slightly less academic publication that they put out four times a year this is from spring of 2019 the cover is one of the most astonishingly beautiful concrete berry vaults I've ever seen it is a mosaic of a hibiscus and there is still a nameplate and this particular grave is um the grave of um, alfred w Hare senior who was one of florida's um, highwayman painters so an artist did and of himself and it's personalized um, in pine rose cemetery which is in fort pierce florida this is a way that you can take a commercially produced product and you can still personalize it make it your own if i had to pick the most common concrete marker it's going to be concrete burial vaults You see them painted all sorts of crazy colors. You see them personalized with mosaics and other things. People might put colored stones or tiles or something on top of them. I think it is a financial decision in the fact that you might not be able to afford a beautiful commercially produced stone. But this is a commercial product that you can personalize and you know is still quality. It also leaves that gray space open. And so the assertion that it makes cemeteries look cluttered or it makes them look haphazard, I don't really like. Because that is a judgment on something that is a non-white, non-Western tradition. And so that's why I kind of have a problem with the description. I agree with him. It is a classifying characteristic and you will find it at almost every cemetery in many portions of the South. I think it is 100% happening for all of the reasons I just described. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think it looks bad, not at all. And in many cases, depending, there are two types of burial vaults. Some which kind of have like curved corners and some which are more flat. If they're the flat ones, they look flush to the ground. Now, I will say that the downside, and I saw this happen all the time when I was at Laurel Grove South, because they are flat, Guys on riding lawn mowers love to run right over the top of them, which uh, that's kind of a lot of weight to be putting on those. And it scratches the top off, and a lot of times it pops the little metal name tags that are on and off, which I think is problematic, because then you don't necessarily have identification on the grave. But I think as a phenomenon, as a cultural phenomenon, it's really interesting, because it shows the intersection of the commercial with the private. So... When I did the breakdown, the overwhelming majority of concrete markers I found were not these funeral home markers. They were not handmade, homemade markers. They were actually modified concrete burial vaults. Okay, I wanna, I'm off my soapbox now. Now, I want to switch back over and talk a little bit about people who have done the research. From what I can see, kind of the most comprehensive publication I've seen was a presentation done by um, Stephanie Hoagland and Gordon Bond, which Stephanie is an architectural conservator. Gordon is a kind of like all-around historian, um, both out of New Jersey. And I I want to say they're married, but I can't remember. Anyways, at the International Cemetery Preservation Summit in 2014, they did a presentation all about their observations on concrete markers In New Jersey cemeteries. And when I used to live in Philadelphia, I actually kind of used their article to kind of chase a lot of these. And they made a lot of the same observations I've already talked about. These tend to be on the fringes of cemeteries. They often are new immigrants. So it's not just an African-American phenomenon. I think the vault more so is, but... Handmade markers tend to be associated with immigrant populations. They tend to be associated with mass death events, whatever it might be. They have some really, really interesting observations, where they also looked at, like, other types of vernacular markers, and they said, they, theirs was one of the statistics, where they said 91% of the ones that they had observed were made of concrete. People don't know how to conserve concrete, so a lot of these are at risk, and they talk quite a bit about it. But they also have found makers, Um, specifically Frank LaPenta, who he actually didn't make concrete gravestones, but his father Dominic did, for two of his sisters who died young. One died in an accident, and I think one died of influenza. But he talked about how his father had made this mold, and it's a cross. Many concrete markers are cruciform in nature. And one of the neighbors had seen the concrete marker that he had poured for his daughters and liked it so much that he made one for this guy's family. And he talked about how this form sat in their basement for years until eventually got infested with termites and they tossed it. But this is a story of someone who was making something specifically for their loved ones. It's not necessarily anything beyond that. And if you look at these, many of them have mosaics. Many of them have things pressed into them coffin hardware is incredibly popular so you know funeral homes would sell crucifixes they would sell other things that were that could be purchased separate and affixed to a coffin to decorate it but people would buy them and then they would press them into the wet concrete most of the concrete is reinforced and i've seen it reinforced with all sorts of stuff not just rebar Unfortunately, and the Hoagland Bond uh, observation talks a lot about this, that the majority of these gravestones lack the minimum depth for reinforced concrete. So, reinforced concrete, if you're not familiar with it, is that you reinforce concrete by putting rebar, generally, inside it. The metal gives it additional strength. But, the concrete has to be a certain thickness and depth, otherwise water intrusion will cause that rebar inside to rust, When it rusts, it expands. When it expands, the concrete cracks. And I have seen dozens upon dozens upon dozens of headstones that go through this exact type of spalling because they have expanded and contracted. I saw one that was actually reinforced with metal chains. And so you could clearly see that it was something that had been made at home. They used what they had available. But that being said, there are still some really striking ones. The largest ones I have ever seen are actually... In a Catholic cemetery up in Princeton, New Jersey, they are taller than I am, so more than five and a half feet. Really elaborate. Um, You see a lot of variation depending on different types of aggregate. Does it have a really fine aggregate? Does it have a larger, chunkier aggregate? You see them decorated with all types of things. I am constantly collecting different versions of concrete headstones. Today I took a picture of one that had sort of like the slide-in letters that you would use on a nameplate, used to spell out all of the information. Letters are often pressed in. Because of this, often, like if you use type press letters, sometimes they're backwards, so you'll see backwards letters. The level of literacy was very widely different. But that being said, it gives them such Character the same way that you can see where often wooden forms were used and you can still see the pattern of the wood often on the very edges of the headstone. Many of them do hold up really well. The toughest, and I saw a lot of this in Savannah, is that they were whitewashed initially and whitewash eventually wears off. So if the name was on the whitewash, a lot of times that washes away and you will no longer know who they belong to. I have seen really interesting ones that have little niches set in them, that have portraits set in them, all kinds of different variations. And this leads me to believe that it's more than just a need or a poverty that drives this. It's more than just there was a disaster, like the flu. Up in Rhode Island, there are a ton of these that are associated with the hurricane of 1938 that I have photographed. It's more than just that. And the reason I say this is that um, I know I've brought up Jordan before. And Jordan is one of Dr. Brown's students. So I won't pick on Dr. Brown too bad despite reading his uh, article before. There's actually a picture of Jordan in that article. She and I, when we met at the Association for Gravestone Studies Conference in Tuscaloosa, were bundled together. So it was her, myself, and Ashley And she was also presenting on Concrete Headstones. And I was sort of blown away because the impression I got when I was first sent into Laurel Grove South was that nobody was talking about these. These were an outlier. I have since learned that a lot of people are observing them. Meaning like people know that they are out there. People often are photographing them and taking pictures of them. There hasn't been a really great study on them. There have been a lot of people doing like casual surveys, and even the Hoagland and Bond survey, they admit like this was just a casual survey that they did. And they were fascinated by these things, so they started taking pictures and observing. There has not been a comprehensive study. I will say that I think that Jordan has done great work because she actually was out there finding makers. So the same way I was talking about Frank LaPenta up in New Jersey, she was out there finding either folks who had made concrete headstones or had family members who in the past made them. And what she found was it was more of a labor of love. That if you opted for a commercially produced headstone, that was seen as you were sort of neglecting your dead. That there was a sort of a pride in producing a headstone yourself. I think that that's part of it. I remember I talked on an episode last year, and I can't remember which one it was, but I talked about a friend of mine who told me how he had helped bury his grandfather. So once his grandfather's coffin was lowered into the vault, they buried him. He and his brothers and cousins, they all opened up a six-pack of beer and they buried him. And I think that so much of the death care industry has been pulled away from caring for our dead that in some cases, making a headstone can be a symbol of care. So we might not actually be cleaning the body and laying out the body and waking them in the parlor. But it's a very tangible way that someone can create a headstone. And if anything, over the past month, as I have talked about makers and materials and the pride that some of these folks take, I think that there is a certain amount of pride in caring for the dead. And I think that in the case that it's very personal, it makes a big difference. Now, like I said, there hasn't been a great academic study. Del Upton, who Del Upton is somebody that you're probably more familiar with if you come from the architecture and architectural history community. He has written about concrete headstones, His study kind of like falls similar with Dr. Brown where he's looking at it more from an economic perspective. I don't think there's anybody studying the artistry of these, which I think is very sad. I would love to see that. And if I ever write a book about cemeteries, it's going to be about concrete markers. Now, one final use of concrete markers I haven't really talked about is institutional markers. Institutional markers are almost always concrete. Now, when I say institutional, what do I mean? I am talking about prison cemeteries, state hospitals, which most people would call a mental asylum, other forms of whether it's a, you know, a sanatorium, where they care for tuberculosis patients, some sort of government-sanctioned institution, orphanages, things like that, almost always have concrete markers. In some cases, they are actually produced by inmates there. Now, I won't go too deep into this because at some point in the future, I would love to do an entire episode on institutional markers because I think they're really fascinating. But they were produced for the exact same reason. First of all, it was cheap, easy, and abundant. But also, it was something that you could have people produce in-house. So if you had a prison workshop or if you had at state hospitals, there were often ways for the patients to work this was something that you could give them to work on. And you can observe a lot of these um, in different cemeteries. It really, it's sad, because I know a lot of times they're seen as not being as beautiful, but these markers to me are so striking, and there's something really, really moving about them that it makes me very sad when I see them replaced. Because often well-intentioned folks in the modern day try to replace them with commercial, more traditional markers. And if you've learned one thing about me, it's that I, I think that people should be able to mark their graves in specific ways, and it doesn't always have to be what we think should look like a Western graveyard. That appearance isn't the most important factor sometimes, In these cases, you know, I think that it's a dishonor sometimes to the folks who made these markers to just get rid of them. Even if they do have difficult or sometimes painful histories. Whew. So, um, if you are ever curious, (laughs) my survey of Laurel Grove South is sitting in the City of Savannah archives. It's really, it's interesting. I would, like I said, love to write a book on this subday, because I think that there's so much to be said for it. There are lots of folks who have definitely brought into it who have talked about certain aspects of it, but there's yet to be a comprehensive study. But just know that the concrete markers are out there. And I hope to post a lot of pictures next week after this episode drops so that you can kind of appreciate some of them because there is such a wide variety. And it's one of those things that when I do encounter a lot of them, I try to learn the stories if I can. And unfortunately, because now most of them were made a century ago, the people who made them are no longer with us. So a lot of those stories are being lost. And that's why I think research into this particular type of marker, these vernacular markers, is becoming increasingly important. I think that's it for now on my concrete bandwagon. Next week, I am coming back with another really exciting um, topic. One more week of materials. I know March will technically be over, but the April 2nd episode will also be about materials. And then um, then we're going to switch topics. And we're going to have, I, I think, a really fun topic for April. Um, I'll give you a hint. Boats. We're talking about boats, and we're talking about the ocean. So get yourself ready. Strap on that life preserver, because we're going to sea. Okay, if you are enjoying the podcast, please, 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 and I will say thank you so much to the people who rated and reviewed this week. People were just incredibly kind and generous, and there were a lot of new reviews this week, so thank you. It's been a long week, so believe me, when I see those type of posts, it does make my day. I just want to let you know that. If you have not reviewed the podcast and you would like to, feel free to log into your podcast app of choice that allows for reviews. Obviously, I see that most of you are listening on Apple Podcasts. That's very easy. You got to sign into iTunes. I know it takes a couple minutes, but if you do have a few spare moments, a five-star rating really does help make me so, more, so much more searchable. As always, I follow, follow along on social media. So Facebook, Instagram, Tomb of the View podcast. On there, I share lots of fun stuff, um, lots of photos to go along with this if you're curious about some of the things I talked about. Unfortunately, after we did marble, I have some great photos for marble, so I hope to be sharing those in the next few weeks. I'll kind of continue the material stuff because I do think it's super interesting. I will be back next week with more materials, but for now, have a wonderful weekend. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.